Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. So Will, what's going on tonight? I really want to get right to it. I want to jump in and I want to get going, but first, let's pause to note that not only is Strange New Worlds coming back for season number two this summer, also renewed for season three. Very, very exciting news. And uh, Star Trek Picard, still gaining acceptance. First two seasons, very, very soft. Not good. But especially as we get into the back half of season three, as I said in my review, I still don't think it's good, but finally... It's at least fun. And I'll settle for that. If it can't be good, I'll settle for fun. And our stories tonight were neither fun nor good. And and I think in terms of an introduction, my question to you tonight, and maybe we can drill down on this and figure it out, at least briefly here. Why does Hush suck so hard? In thinking about it and reflecting on, on that myself, We've talked about his design, how it's terrible, how it doesn't make any sense with the character, at least what I would imagine the character to be. But I think ultimately there is no believability to this character whatsoever. And yes, we're dealing with comic books and it's fantasy and fancy. But in these stories tonight, he operates on himself as a plastic surgeon he recreates his face to look like Bruce Wayne's like again, by himself with no anesthesia. He removes someone's heart. He's apparently great at hand-to-hand combat. He manipulates and schemes to control Gotham. None of this strikes me as the least bit believable. And also we have no sympathy for him. We can't relate to the character It's all so bad. It's so much ass, Matt. Hush is a character who's built on a sandcastle. Because he was created not to be a character, but as a device to forward Hush, the original Jeff Loeb, Jim Lee story. He was there to provide a story engine, but didn't need to be a real character. You knew who he was from Jump. The introduction of Tommy Elliot was like, well, duh, he's the villain. And it was so obvious also because it was meant to be a device for Riddler. So when you've got a character who is created to not be anything more than a plot device, you're building the building that is the character on top of a foundation that isn't meant to support that. And it can't support it. This was a difficult week. Ironically, the the removing the heart of a character and them living was actually possibly the far more believable bit just because it's comic book science. I can accept comic book science. But there's all manner of other things that are just, yeah, we'll we'll get there. But it's, it's like he can just do everything aside from fucking kill Batman. Like, oh, he's a, he's like a world-class heart surgeon. 
and again, a fighter and a schemer and a plotter and has all of this money and just can't fucking kill one dude. And a plastic surgeon and a neurosurgeon. And that's we're we're gonna get there, but at this point, <laughs> yeah, because boy, if it weren't obvious from this, tonight we are talking about the bat villain who looks like a mummy and doesn't act like a mummy. Hush. Man, I wish tonight was just fucking three stories of Batman fighting mummies. That would have been a lot of fun. Possibly. I would read that comic. We're going to go chronologically. So we are starting with pushback. This is Batman Gotham Knights numbers 50 to 55. The writer is A.J. Lieberman with pencils by Al Nuevo, inks by Francis Portella, colors by Noel Giddings and Heroic Age and Brad Anderson. Letters by Clem Robbins and edited by Matt Idelson and Nachi Castro. The cover dates are April to September of 2004. In the aftermath of his original attack on Batman, Hush seeks revenge on the Riddler, and Riddler needs help. He goes to the one man who thinks can stop Hush, the Joker, because he has a secret the Joker wants desperately. All the while, Batman feels the coming of the storm and begins feeling Hush's claws close upon him. The second story might be bad. This is so much worse. And this is this is worse in that it's only half a story. Not even half. <laughs> Gotta understand something. <laughs> Lieberman's run on Gotham Knights is issues 50 to 74. It is 24 issues. 25 issues. issues. 25. Yes. It is 25 issues. Hush appears in all but one. That's too much hush, Matt. It's a lot of hush. And it's going to be mixing some stuff up here, but you already talked about the heart. So if you know you're Batman. You know we're talking about Heart of Hush next. At least Heart of Hush tries to make Hush a character. Here he's not. Here he's just this juggernaut, this unstoppable force who has no motivation, no personality. He's just this game master who is sitting here building elaborate plots while living in a shack and apparently looking like Jason Voorhees. Yeah, this is, what, six issues that reads like 12? But has the amount of story you should have fit in about three. Yeah, because we get just these random asides. Like, we... We meet the crew of people who check into the cabin that uh, Hush is staying in. Apparently, Gotham has some swamps. Slaughter Swamp is a thing, because that's where Solomon okay. Grundy comes from. Fair he enough. Spawns out of the Slaughter Swamps outside of Gotham. But it would have been nice for them to call them Slaughter Swamps, since that is a well-established name for those swamps. Uh, so we, we meet... Uh, spend some time with those guys we also spend some time in uh, killing joke country um oh we'll fun. get there we will <laughs> get there we spend a lot of time with green arrow yeah who who batman they have a fight for reasons okay here's here's my big question at any point is it established exactly why hush is going after Riddler. I assume it's from Hush. Well, right, but 
what happened during Hush that has made Hush want to go and kill the Riddler? I assume it's an actual thing. I certainly don't remember. They don't say. Oh, no. Nowhere is it said precisely why Hush is going after Riddler. My assumption when rereading this, because I will flat out admit, I remember this sucking. (laughs) We're going to do Heart of Hush, and we needed two other Hush stories. So this run is one of those runs I was like, oh, God, we are going to someday have to do the Lieberman Gotham Knights. All right, let's just bite the bullet and do the first arc to get get just get it out of the way. I, I don't want to do any more, Matt. <laughs> and the things we've done the next few issues, because the next three issues are part of War Game. We've already pushed through that. Uh, but knowing what I know from Heart of Hush... The other story sounds real fucking dumb. That's only a two-parter at the end. There's a whole elaborate Hush versus Poison Ivy arc, then a Hush and Clayface arc, and then you get the Hush and Joker arc at the very end. No. Any story where Joker is implanting a pacemaker and then this world-renowned villain, monster, surgeon, fighter has to remove that pacemaker... That just sounds dumb. I don't want it. You don't even get the removal. That ends with Joker having put the pacemaker in Hush and Batman leaving them to fight. Danny hand waves a 25-issue story away in two pages because he he knew it sucked. Good for Danny. That might be the only time I say that tonight, but good for him. While I have many, many problems with Heart of Hush, I think I'm a little warmer on it than you, not by a ton. But I think in comparison to pushback and in comparison to the last story, Heart of Hush is leaps and bounds better than anything else we're doing tonight, which is not saying a lot. Ah, there'd be a low bar to clear. Precisely. (laughs) But my assumption when going back and starting this is that when Riddler is in Blackgate, all the other inmates are clapping him on the back for playing all the other rogues and nearly taking out the bat and this and that so i was like oh right hush is after him because riddler took credit for the entire hush thing and didn't even mention him so this is about hush's ego only we don't seem to get that it's never mentioned Or is it that he feels like Riddler didn't back him up and left him hanging and, you know, getting shot and knocked off a bridge? Maybe it's that, but we don't get any exact information why. See, I just assume that I was the asshole for not remembering Hush. The Riddler has been in jail for half of Hush because he got arrested trying to rob an armored car. Hush confronts Bruce on one of the bridges out of Gotham. Harvey Dent shoots Hush a few times and Hush falls off the bridge. And that's towards the end of the last part. And then Bruce goes to Blackgate and meets with Riddle's like, yeah, you were behind the whole thing. Yeah, we don't get any reasoning between Hush and the Riddler in Hush. There is no explanation other than Hush is a vindictive son of a bitch. Which, granted, might be reason in itself, as that seems to be his character. I would take that, driven certainly by ego, and not not even like a rational ego either, because 
obviously he blames Bruce for so many of his troubles that are all imaginary, or at least of the upper class put on woe is me kind of troubles. Which in itself, I don't think is terrible because he's a sociopath. Exactly. He's looking for someone to blame for all the things that are going on with him. But that's Heart of Hush. That's not here because that's for all of his other things. At least, again, in Heart of Hush, he's a character. He might not be a good character. He might not be a well-wrought character, but he's a character. Here, there is no personality. No, zero. Uh, let me ask you this. This might be my first, uh, you mentioned the War Games stuff, uh, so I, we did read that. What are your views or is your view about Lieberman's work as a whole? Because I kind of, I, there's at least a few things in here where he didn't come off as a good writer. And, and, I'll, and I'll just, I'll point out just one little specific thing. So Hush gets Riddler out of Blackgate, or no, no, excuse me, Joker gets Riddler out of Blackgate by blackmailing the warden. And he does so with a sex tape. And it's very clumsy in that it is a sex tape in S&M gear with a minor. And obviously that's gross and wrong and problematic and kink shaming and just bad. But it's also putting a hat on a hat, right? If you're going to blackmail the warden, all you need is the S&M gear or just the fact of a sex tape with a guy who was married or the fact that it is the warden committing a crime. Putting all of that together is just excessive. And especially as Joker is narrating this panel and that we can see the tape in the background. Like it's just, it's overriding and overthinking. And again, the question was to you, the man's work as a whole. Lieberman, he's does not have a ton of credits and most of them are Batman and none of them are particularly good and memorable he did this run on gotham knights he did a very short run on detective doing backups not even doing the main story he did backups in detective which feed into this gotham knights run and he did a run on harley quinn the harley quinn i vaguely remember being a Hey, but not feeling like a Harley Quinn comic. It's this really noir Harley story. He also wrote a truly wretched Martian Manhunter miniseries. So I think what I'm generally saying is, no, he's not good. <laughs> of all of this, all of his stuff, I am mostly tempted to go back and reread that Harley Quinn and see if it at all is in my head as, oh, that wasn't terrible it was it was a weird big like hard left turn from the first harley quinn creative team on that book because the original creative team did this really kind of wacky harley doing harley stuff and then you go into this crime tinged harley which i'm not sure if it was good or if it was just something that I'm remembering is so different that it struck me, it sticks in my head because it was different, not necessarily because it was good. Mm. Here's the thing about the warden and the sex tape. When you establish him as that much of a disgusting person, not for the S&M, but for the, the minor, he needs to pay. 
if you just said, oh, he's involved in kinky sex that doesn't involve his wife, it's like, oh, okay, that's a problem between him and his wife, but he's not necessarily a complete reprehensible slime. If he's taking bribes, there, there's points you can get to where people can do things where it's like, yeah, he's a Gotham politician. He's a political appointee. He's taking bribes, whatever. Sex with a minor, you got to pay. Mm. And here he's just, you know, does what the Joker says and he gets away with it. And in all possibility, continues to carry on with his underage mistress. That's not good. My actual note with that is Joker is blackmailing Warden of Blackgate with a tape of him doing BDSM with a 15-year-old. Gross. Yeah. All in caps. Yeah. I have a lot of all in caps on this story with lots of fuck that. No <laughs> way. What the hell? This blows. This story really annoyed me. Because Lieberman does not get any of these characters. I'm particularly annoyed with how he uses Oracle. He's not the only writer who has this particular sin with Oracle. But it's one of the worst cases of the Batman's not a detective. Batman is just going through this story, constantly sending all of his detecting over to have oracle do it yeah outsourcing all of that work right oracle can do that for characters who aren't batman if there are superheroes who need someone to trace things to find a villain yeah absolutely go to oracle she can do that bruce doesn't need oracle for that bruce can have babs do some hacking while he's on the go but when he brings a tooth back from the site where he found Hush and he sends the schematics of the tooth to Oracle to have her run down the tooth, he's the world's greatest detective. <laughs> he doesn't need Barbara for that. Mm -hmm. He needs Barbara for, as a sounding board. He needs Barbara, to again, to do stuff while he's not sitting in the Batcave. If he's in the Batcave, he can do that work himself. So he just clearly does not get how that relationship should work. He does not get Tim Drake at all. Tim sounds off in this entire run. And what the what the fuck was that scene with Tim like going out with this guy to buy this thing? The, what the, the tailor. Fuck? That's a character Lieberman introduced in the detective backup who makes supervillain costumes, supervillain superhero costumes. Why does Tim need to go to him when Tim works with Batman? Because Lieberman created that character and Lieberman wanted to use him. Uh... It makes no sense. And for all the other problems with Hush's costume in general, this one's worse. When he's just bandages on his head and no shirt, which is like the, the bandages under that, he looks like Jason Voorhees wearing leather face overalls when he's out in the swamp. And then he comes into the city and he's no shirt no service, dude. Sorry. Well, we'll certainly get to that, uh, this, but nothing as far as Hush's costume is quite so goofy as when he pauses in the middle of a dramatic climactic fight scene 
to grab the medical supplies and bandage himself. Oh, so he could very conveniently uh, get those same bandages caught in uh, in a propeller. A, this book, I mean, for all my complaints about Batman, well, fortunately, there's not a lot of Batman in here. No, there's there's a lot of Joker being mopey about how his wife died. And there's the big sin, the even bigger sin than everything else. Good God, does Lieberman not know how to write Joker? Who the hell is this character? Mopey-ass Jack Napier? <laughs> the cementing of Killing Joke and the fact that it doesn't even line up with the flashbacks from Killing Joke. Now, again, the argument there is that Killing Joke is one version of Joker's history in his own head. So maybe this is a this is apparently the real version of that because Riddler was somehow involved and saw this. This, as I recall, never followed up on. Very good. No, not even Lieberman follows up on this. <laughs> because when he doesn't bring Joker back until the last two issues of the series... And so has to wrap up Joker's rivalry with Hush, so doesn't have time to play with any of the Killing Joke stuff. And do I think Joker thinks that he's king of Gotham? Sure. Does Joker go out of his way to, you know, rule Gotham with an iron fist? No. He's got better things to do. He's got laughing fish to make. Exactly. Like, if it was funny, he would do it. But yeah, all of this shit comes off much more like a like a mobster type. Oh, this is this is my city. Oh, Hush needs to go. Wah, 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 wah. Like, what the fuck? And then Penguin shows up arbitrarily with him and Joker just sitting around having a conversation, which just out of nowhere you get Penguin. And this is such a bad representation of the character of Prometheus. They actually wound up later retconning it, that it was just some dude who grabbed Prometheus's costume. And it's not even the original Prometheus. Prometheus is a dude who fought the Justice League, the entire Justice League, to a standstill. And here, he's Hush's errand boy? What? And nearly killed by the Green Arrow? Yeah. And boy, Ollie, before, you know, and this isn't even involving Ollie's, you know, beating up on Bruce. He shoots three arrows into Prometheus, all in spaces that if Prometheus moved the slightest bit, could have ruptured major arteries and he would have bled out in seconds. The argument is, oh, he's so such a good archer that he... he put them in those places and didn't actually hit the arteries. But still, he's fighting someone in motion. If Prometheus had moved slightly, Ollie would have killed him. And there's nothing Ollie could have done to stop it. And everybody's anatomy is different. I cannot look at you visually and say, oh, your artery is precisely there. Precisely there. Very goofy. Oh, and then, of course, Prometheus is injured, and we get this whole overwrought narration when Hush is operating on him in this dingy hotel room. Uh, surgeons take life and make life, and I am I am a god. And, like, it's just it's so dopey. All of the narration in this thing is ridiculously overwrought. 
Hush narrates this entire thing, and it's like, oh my god, I don't care. Again, my note, the Hush narration throughout this thing blows. <laughs> blows in capital letters. No one ever sees my notes, but I I make notes to amuse myself, because I take a lot of them. <laughs> At the end, when Bruce is talking to Oracle, he's like, Prometheus, what do we know about her? You're Batman! Why are you asking Oracle? You're the one who's fought Prometheus already, repeatedly. Why do you need Oracle to fill you in? You don't. This is here because Laborman is too lazy to come up with some other way to give the exposition on who Prometheus is three issues after Prometheus already appeared. Why did you wait three issues to give the reader the origin and background of this character? And then this this story just stops it just peters out it peters out and the only thing i can say it, that is not on Lieberman because I, that come that's war games that mm-hmm. is okay editorial says i've got to insert the crossover here but don't worry i'm gonna put a little bit of hush and prometheus in all three of my chapters so you know we still have hush and prometheus all over the place matt matt's making the scowly face but you know i i thought joker's Getting to that amusement park. Aha, yeah, Killing Joke was a story. Good job. And I thought there was going to be some kind of climactic thing there, but nope. Just says the end for now. And you know what? It's not even good looking. No. It's not. Bland. Bland. Exactly. It's not bad. It's just perfectly serviceable. Yeah. Lots of just not detailed panels. Doesn't feel like there's a lot of craftsmanship and art and pride in the work. It just exists. It just, it gets you from point A to point B of the story. That's it. I think that about does it because I could probably sit here and rant about how all the the other stuff about this that was obnoxious. Oh, for instance, the fact that the, the hospital that Hush Booby Traps is Gotham City Hospital, not Gotham General, not Gotham Mercy. It is the Gotham City Hospital, as if a city like Gotham would have just the one hospital. hospital. Yeah. I noted a couple times in here, this is God mode hush. He can do everything. He, He builds this incredibly elaborate bomb. He knows everything. And it's just like, oh, I... Just <laughs> this story makes Matt make noise, and somehow Hush was able to set it up so that when Oracle needed to reroute a Wayne satellite, it jammed up. So she had to, you know, use another satellite that didn't get them the information they needed in time, unless that was a coincidence, which is lazy. I don't know what's worse, lazy or Hush is able to somehow stop Oracle from doing Oracle stuff, meaning he's better at this than Oracle. Ah, oh, but they had to use a LexCorp satellite, which was not followed up on at all. Nope, I don't believe it is at any point. Just so much wasted space in these six books. Oh, oh, and the, of course the last one was 10 extra pages because we really needed that. I'm trying to remember, this wraps in april of this series wraps cover date april of 06 
which means that it's release date of March of 06, March or February of 06. So yeah, this ended right in the purge right before Infinite Crisis. So yeah, I was just trying to get the timeline straight in my head. I think I'm done. <laughs> that means it's time for pushbacks on the big board. We have 240 stories on the big board. Story number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One, from Batman Volume 1, numbers 404 to 407. Down at number 50 is For the Man Who Has Everything, the Superman annual where Batman tells Jason Todd to think pure thoughts. And coming in at 69, if you believe it, is Batman... Hush! Down at 100 is Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77. At 150 is Zero Year, the post-Flashpoint New 52 origin of Batman. Down at 200, we have Superman Speeding Bullets, where Kal-El is adopted by the Waynes. And hey, guess what? Down at 240, it's White Knight. Still bad. I don't think this uh, this pile of poop cracks the top 200. No. Oh, no. Okay, here's the thing. This is not offensive. No. Except for that one thing with the warden, there is not anything else in here that is offensive. It's just dull and too long and doesn't understand any of these characters yeah so where where does our where's where's the offensive stuff start the Um, truly offensive stuff starts around 228 is borderline offensive 229 is incredibly dull and then below that you start i think 230 everything from 232 down is offensive The stuff above that in the tier from about 221 to 231, some of it is offensive, but well-meaning. And some of it is just plain dull or bad. And then we've got the stuff from around slightly above that, like 215 to 220 is just dull. So, yeah, I I think we're somewhere between probably 215... And 225, give or take. Yes. 217 is the arrow and the bat. This is the five-part Legends of the Dark Knight story. Denny O'Neill and Sergio Cariello. Batman and Green Arrow. And Ollie gets the yips. And it's a weird, fake Asian nation and a con artist. And... It's not good, but it's one issue shorter than this. And nothing in it made me angry. That one was just like, this is too long. I'm not in love with the Asian stereotypes in there. It did not make me grit my teeth and give the scowly look. No. And I think I would sooner reread In Darkest Night, right below that, where Batman gets the Green Lantern ring and fights a 
Joker, Joe Chill, Sinestro hybrid, which is a hat on a hat on a hat, but still. <laughs> Superman's Secret Kingdom is just, again, weird, and it's got, you know, your typical Silver Age, oh, we're going down to Central America, so let's, Central or South America, I can't recall which, we're, we're going to have a, you know, indigenous people who are not at all properly represented. No. But it's that's that's still some quirky golden age fun. Okay, see, here's one problem, and this is one of these ones where I think we need to re-rank it at some point. 227, the last Batman story, it should be up a bit higher than that. It it should. It just it, it sort of fell down there because of the placement of some other stuff. It is this sort of glaring thing where it is neither boring nor offensive. It's just the title was so misleading. It should probably be up in the two teens. Because I would sooner reread that in a heartbeat over most of the stuff right above it. And definitely this. And of course, that poor, sweet summer child, Holy Terror at 201. Yes. So sad. Another one that needs to move up. All right, we got to make a call on this one. I'm going to say to the new 221. The only reason it winds up on top of War Games is because War Games is so ponderously long. Yes. It, and it also has it has some offensive parts. It has some similar problems with characterization, partially in the Lieberman issues. But, who doctor. This one was rough. Mm, it's not getting much better. Our second story is Heart of Hush. This is Detective Comics, Volume 1, 846. Our second story is Heart of Hush. This is Detective Comics, Volume 1, numbers 846 to 850. The writer is Paul Dini, with pencils by Dustin Nguyen, inks by Derek Friedolfs, Colors by John Kalish, letters by Travis Lanham, Steve Wands, John J. Hill, and Jared K. Fletcher, and edited by Janine Schaefer, Janelle Aslin, and Mike Martz. The cover dates are September of 2008 through January of 2009. With the black gloves circling Batman, Hush wants to make one final play to be the one to destroy the Dark Knight. Juxtaposed with the details of his origin, Hush chooses to strike directly at Batman's heart. Uh-huh. Why don't you go first? <laughs> because I'm possibly going to be playing devil's advocate on some of your points, depending oh. on where you go. Oh, good, 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 good. So I had high expectations for this book going in because I've heard, all right, you got to read Heart of Hush. You might like Hush better after you read Heart of Hush. And uh, I didn't. Again, like I, I feel like I can just I could just diagnose Paul Dini through his work. Zatanna's in this story. Catwoman exists only to be pursued by Bruce and to be loved by Bruce and to be an anchor to Bruce. Hush himself has a love interest that walks in. And here I am thinking the whole time as soon as soon as she uh, is in here. Oh, she's here only to steal his money because women are evil. He's an established character. 
Ah, okay. He is an earlier character from this run. She is the second ventriloquist. Wesker dies and he's alive now because of, you know, continuity reboots. But Wesker dies right after Infinite Crisis and Peyton Riley takes up Scarface and becomes the new ventriloquist. Which okay. is why during the final issue, when after Hush has finished telling his whole story to Bruce, he says, you know, I heard bad things happen to her. Scarface is in the background of that panel. Ah. Bruce has taken Scarface from her and put him there as a trophy. So it's a very particular call that she is the second ventriloquist from earlier in the run. Ah, very good. Okay, so at least that character has some dimension and her place in the story is not quite so bad. As compared to the previous story, this one is better, but this was still tiresome and I didn't really like or get much out of these flashbacks. When the guy kills his dad at nine with designs to kill both of his parents. I don't know where you go from there as a character. Um, and we just kept going right on into those flashbacks. I don't know how much of those points I can argue. <laughs> I am more forgiving of Dini's use of Zatanna than you are. Mm hmm. I recently finished editing the episode that y'all will have heard now a few weeks ago with Josh Wheel coming and talking about crossovers. And in that episode, he points out that, you know, if Dan Jurgens were writing Zero Hour today, Booster Gold would be the main character because Dan Jurgens loves Booster Gold. Paul Dini loves Zatanna. I just accept that Dini is going to use Zatanna in what Dini writes. It's just there are... A lot of creators have characters they love and they use them in all their stories. But every scene, it's Zatanna and Selena and they just talk about Bruce. Yes. Oh, yes. The fact that the Zatanna and Selena scenes not only fail the Bechdel test, but Miserably. They, they get like a five out of a hundred on the Bechdel test. Yes, that was problematic. I'm not willing to be annoyed at Dini for using Zatanna. I am annoyed that I don't ever want Batman to feel like Poochie. And in those scenes, it's literally when Bruce is not <laughs> on page, people should be asking, where's Bruce? Where's Bruce? Uh, do you love Bruce? You should love Bruce. Does Bruce love you? I feel like Dini created a backstory that potentially could make Hush a more interesting character. And does in some aspects, but I don't feel like he ever hits the notes that would have made him as interesting as he could have been. Because he is, as I said earlier, he's a sociopath. He clearly has no empathy. Explore that more. I think what you, what you need, like if we're gonna if we're gonna reboot, totally reboot Tommy Elliot, let's have Tommy. As a childhood friend of the Waynes, let's have the boys grow up together and let's have a split where Tommy's parents are killed tragically. Tommy's got nothing to do with it. Elliot's, however, got no living relatives. You got nothing. 
Elliot family fortunes, we'll say through a sad twist of fate, fall to the tax man. They fall to the state. They they got nothing. Tommy has got no living relatives. He winds up at an orphanage. He plays with rats for the next 10 years. Rises above all of that. Goes to medical school. Harbors a grudge. A well-founded grudge against Bruce Wayne because he still has all of that money and fame. And then Tommy Elliott rises from, from the ashes as Hush. And he, uh, you know, he sets about trying to destroy Bruce. It's more of a, I guess, a grounded and less like plots within plots, but it's more of an inverse. It's more of a dark mirror to Bruce. Like what would have happened if not for Alfred? What would have happened if not for all of the resources that the Wayne family still had? So that's how I would restart this character. Because again, I gave it some thought thinking about how much I hate this guy. I'm willing to go with Tommy as a kid killed his parents, but cutting the break lines and that's low. That's not Deanie is such an elaborate thing for a nine-year-old to do. I would have him try to, he starts a fire and you can actually still work the plot as it is, but it's less contrived to begin with, or actually, and this just hit me. Ooh, and this is actually a little bit of Deadshot, which we'll do the Deadshot miniseries someday. The mother eggs the kid on when it comes to the, the helping her bump off the abusive father. That would be much more interesting and paint the mother as more of a demanding, manipulative woman. And the fact that she winds up getting accidentally or possibly intentionally by Tommy caught in the fire or whatever and is left as an invalid and he has to take care of her. She harbors a paranoid or possibly well-founded thought that in trying to get rid of the father, he, he tried to get rid of her too. Whether that's true or not, you don't know. Maybe in this case, it was an accident that she got caught in the fire. But now part of her keeping something over him is that she blames him specifically for her being in this condition. Yes. And so we are left with a much more abusive relationship so we can have at least more interest when he does uh inevitably bump her off yeah i i like this i really do and since we see all of these flashbacks from his point of view you've got the question of the unreliable narrator because in the end before he kills her she says i never made you stay this was all you not having the courage to go out into the world, which could be her gaslighting him. Or the, everything leading up to that point has been him projecting onto her. And it, but he's, he, he also says like, oh, but I've been waiting to go to med school, right? So 
to me, it reads more of the mother's delusions than him as an unreliable narrator. But then at the same time, we have the mother saying, oh, I, I can't believe you're you're associating with this this criminal. I can't believe uh, and, and I'm, I'm cutting you out of the will because you've done this. And the mother was right to do that because she's helping plot against her. Like either the mother can be abusive or not abusive. Either she can be mentally unwell or she could not be mentally unwell. She can be right or she can be wrong. It's very strange to have her kind of in both places. Right. And I would have just assumed she was gaslighting him, except for the fact that it is weirdly inconsistent throughout. And I'm also suddenly the fact that he was a protege of Scarecrow out of nowhere is a choice. Yes. I wasn't particularly enamored with that. That just felt like, let's have an excuse to work in another villain which you could have simply done by having him offer to pay Scarecrow. He didn't need the long backstory connecting the two of them. He could just be willing to pay Crane and have him in on the plot. I don't think Scarecrow needed any more motivation than, here's money to buy chemicals, and oh, you get to torture a kid. That would have, I think, worked fine. Yeah, but no, it was... Oh, Crane was always a crooked doctor, don't you see? Yeah, which he pretty much always was a psycho. There's no version of Scarecrow where even as a kid, he wasn't a little bit disturbed. And this is the first appearance of Colin, who is a character who recurs later in Streets of Gotham. Mm, Really? Yeah. The Venom permanently affects him. He's able, you saw him, he was in Little Gotham. He becomes friends with Damien. He becomes Damien's first friend. And he can grow and shrink at will. And so becomes a defender of abused children in Gotham. Okay, good for him. Calls himself Abuse, which is not a great name. Uh, Uh, No. Yeah, but he like defends other kids and he and Damien become friends. I had forgotten that his first appearance was in this. I thought it was at the beginning of Streets of Gotham. Like, oh right, hey, it's 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 Colin. Huh. It's Colin. I do really like Nguyen's scarecrow. The angles and the, the mask and everything. I like his scarecrow a lot. I'm a big fan of Nguyen in general oh, yeah. as an artist. And I think oh, yeah. this is peak Nguyen. His style as he keeps going gets less detailed and broader which is an evolution of his style, which is fine. But I like this point where it's still a little more traditional, a little cleaner. The lines aren't as soft. Derek Friedolf is inking him a little tighter here than he does later because they continue to work together, I think, to this day. So let me ask you this. Have we have we gone over the central plot here? I don't think so, aside from the bit in the synopsis. Basically, we're dancing in the raindrops of Batman R.I.P. This was the R.I.P.-related arc in Detective, which is why there's references to the Black Glove and to Jezebel Jet. This was running at the same time as R.I.P. and takes place 
right before R.I.P. and the epilogue takes place after. Yeah. That's why Selena said there's no such thing as happy endings. Bruce and I had it for one night because from there he goes to R.I.P. and Final Crisis and by that two months later is believed dead. I see. Okay. Epilogue makes a little more sense now. Because this would have come out, I think this this came out the same month as Final Crisis 6 where Darkseid kills Bruce. Uh, DC and your big old events. I would ask you what's going on in Lazarus Planet and why I should care about it, but we do not have enough time in this show. And I wouldn't necessarily be able to give you any kind of answer that would make you care because it was one of those crossovers that was there to introduce a lot of new characters that are probably not, nobody's going to remember in about a year. I just want Alfred back. I know. Right there with you. Because Alfred kicking the shit out of Hush at the beginning of the last part of this, two thumbs up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've forgotten all about that. Hush cutting up his own face to look like Bruce Wayne's. Yes. At least at least Deanie waved at that. It's like, oh, uh, it's probably not going to be that good, but uh, maybe if somebody's not paying attention, they'll believe it's Bruce. Okay, so Hush is a plastic surgeon. Yeah. He fixed his fa- he changes his face. He fixed Harvey's face in Hush. He is a heart surgeon because he removes Selena's heart. He's a neurosurgeon because he f- fixed the brain bleed that Bruce was suffering at the beginning of Hush. He's some sort of miracle worker because he was able to remove Harold's hunch, fix his vocal cords so he could speak. This is the problem with doctors in comic books. They can do anything. And he's also able to keep a staff of unhoused people, uh, apparently drugged and able to work for him. Dozens of them. And I mean, I will absolutely admit that we do see Mr. Terrific and Dr. Midnight. And Dr. Midnight, yes, is a one of these comic book doctors who can do anything. But that's his thing. Like, he was a savant. Like He especially was, like, the world's greatest doctor who then became a superhero. So if that's your thing, great. But I, I don't see where all of these skills come from. And, yes, Victor Freeze is brilliant, but Terrific likens this technology to apocalyptic technology, the technology of the gods. That's beyond what we normally see Freeze's intellect ranked as. That's like, again, on par with Luthor and Terrific and Bruce. Freeze is a genius, but he's not, you know, one of the 10 great minds of the DC universe. And just, again, I hate, all of this is kind of bleeding over in terms of my dislike for Hush and my dislike for these stories, but... Oh, I'm going to go after your heart by taking Selena's heart, but I'm going to keep it safe in this fancy machine, and I'm going to keep her alive with all of this intricate technology. There just should be so much death. Just so much just simple death these plots are too convoluted they're too goofy and 
I need to lie down, Matthew. And I need to rest. Forget the name of the hospital, the abandoned hospital that Hush has taken over. It's Sacred Heart. Oh, you see what they did there? Even accepting the Selena thing, Heart of Hush, that's the theme. Naming the hospital Sacred Heart is like, really? That's a hat and a hat and a hat and a hat. A lot of hats on hats on hats tonight. Oh, we're not even getting, we haven't even picked up the the worst, most frustrating story yet in terms of just being convoluted drivel. But at least it's short convoluted drivel. Ah, God bless that. I want to posit something. Yes, sir. And this is written in 2008 because cover date of January 09 is a release date in 08. We are further down the timeline in Dini's writing than we are in most of the other things that we have read. Not a ton, but a little. If we are to work under the supposition that you have stated about seeing Dini's neuroses and personal failings, etc., in his writing, is adding the additional layer of truly unpleasant misogyny into Hush, the villain, the dark mirror of the hero that is Batman, that is his hero personally, some kind of conscious or subconscious attempt to fight with the issues he has with women that he willingly admits in Dark Knight. Interesting. Because supposing Dark Knight came out in the early teens he's probably in that therapy and dealing with those issues probably as this story is being written what did you see as hush's misogyny the language hush uses towards selena the fact that he he calls her trash the way he looks at zatanna that she's this ragamuffin who wasn't worth anything the unpleasantness of hush's mother and the unpleasantness of, uh, pleasantness of Hush's mother actually feels more tropey than personal. That overbearing mother is right out of Hitchcock, is right out of all manner of classic literature. You know, Mrs. Havisham from Great Expectations. That just more feels like leaning into a trope. The way Hush, Tommy, more or less plays Peyton Riley in the end. There's a real whore Madonna feeling for Peyton that as long as she was the other person who was trying to get out from under her family, she was idealized. But the minute she acts and kills the lawyer to try to help him, she's no longer worth his time. Mm. Just the way he acts towards Selena in general. It feels like Hush has a deep-seated hatred of women, probably because of his mother. Yeah, the overall plot seemed to me to to reflect all of that. I was just trying to think of those specific moments. And you feel that maybe singular to Hush's appearance here? In Dini's work, because we don't see that in the original Hush, particularly. He's not treating Ivy any differently than he's treating Scarecrow or Joker. 
I don't think he interacts with a female character in the Lieberman run. We didn't get any impression of that. Not too much of an impression of that in Eternal. He t- says some shitty, creepy things to Julia Pennyworth, sure. But he says some shitty, creepy things to everyone. I would have to go back and reread House of Hush and some of Deanie's later work. But it also could be Deanie positioning Hush as someone that Selena would have to deal with. So making him a misogynist gives her an extra angle to come at him. And she does beat him in the end in that she she takes away all of his money. Which is so, great. I love I like that epilogue. To my reading, if Deanie truly has any misogyny, it is, I think, in just the idea that women are a weakness. Women are a liability. They will trick you. They will hurt you. You don't need them just kind of an incel themes maybe but i would not disagree with sort of your analysis in that we are grafting the the misogyny onto hush as being this villain of batman you know maybe batman is my my better natures my more idealized vision of myself the guy who gets the girl in the end rather than being this incel one last Paul Dini note, and this uh, this gets to another one of your loves. Some of his work was lost in the HBO Max cutbacks. Uh, he wrote Scoob Holiday Haunt, uh, which was canceled. Curse you, HBO Max. And that that's got to be a, a thing that sucks, right? You you sit down, you write a feature length film. You presumably get the green light, and then it's canceled. They fully produced an animated Scooby-Doo meets Crypto thing. Like It was done and in the can, and they canceled it. And apparently, it leaked online at one point. I'm sure it's gone now. One final note. It's good to see Slam Bradley. Absolutely. And Slam, I always got to trust you got there, bud. We will eventually cover more of the Brubaker and then Will Pfeiffer Catwoman. That has a lot of slam in it because that's part of why he's he and Selena are very good friends. And so that's part of why he's like, yeah, at the end, he's like, yeah, I already had it in for the guy. And now when I heard what he did to you, I got more. And uh, one day, one day when we do another Tom King episode, maybe do a Gotham year one. A very different slam. Uh-oh. Matt, well, that, Matt, Matt gave me the grimace face again. No, that was more of a... I would like Gotham Year One 25% more if it were Black Label. I don't like the fact that it's canon and suddenly Slam is 90 years old and is factoring out of continuity and some of the changes it's made to Gotham history I'm not in love with. If I can divorce myself from the continuity part of my head, I like it a lot more. So I honestly think I can view it as Black Label because I don't think anyone is ever going to pick up any of the stuff that it's tried to add to canon and use it. Oh, Tom King is. Where, in Brave and the Bold or in Wonder Woman? Uh, I, you know he's going to get like some uh, random-ass detective run in 12 months or something. 
Oh, and now Matt's giving me the scally face. I'm really loving Rom V's effective. Don't make me think that we're going to go out of something so weird and wild and crazy into another year-long formalist screed from Tom King. <laughs> and on that positive, loving, hopeful note, I think it's time to let Batman hard to hush on the big board. All right. Well, we're above pushback. Yeah, we're probably out of the 200s. Yeah. Dark Knight is 176. It's better than that. Yeah. I, I don't know how much better. Okay, I'll say this. It's it's better than Detective Comics 824 at 163. Why won't Paris Hilton fuck me? Yeah. That's definitely a more toxic Dini story. I would not put it above 151 or 152. No, no, that, that was about my ceiling as well. I was looking around there. I would read this again before I would read Death and the Maidens at 156. Yeah. Would it go above the one above that is the Swamp Thing Tom King issue, speaking of Tom King. Hmm. Shorter, but that isn't always the telling thing. Because then if that were true, we would have the shortest stories up at the top, and we don't necessarily. No. Brave in the Mold sure is pretty. It is. And this is this is not bad. There's some really nice splash pages in here. When the Robins are fighting the, the Wonderland gang, and Tweedledee and Tweedledum are running out, and then there's just the splash page of Batman standing there, glowed out, put it back. Yeah. That is a really nice splash of Batman. And I love the way Nguyen draws the splash of the cave when Hush first sees the Batcave for the first time and you get this big shot of the Batcave. Bruce, you magnificent bastard. Yes. That's a great moment because for a second there, Tommy is actually kind of envious, almost awe-filled. And then he immediately shifts back to being, you know, Oh, yeah, look at all this. But that's sour grapes. I like the fact that there's that moment where it really feels like sour grapes more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, I'd say on balance, new one double nickels. Sounds good. New 155 it is. Oh, and we come to the final story. <laughs> uh, uh, this one's on you, man. Oh. <laughs> uh, God almighty. Because our final story of the night is Tales from the Dark Multiverse, Batman Hush. This is a one-shot written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, penciled by Dexter Soy and Sergio Davila, inked by Soy and Matt Santarelli, colored by Ivan Plasencia, letters by Troy Pateri, and edited by Ben Abernathy and Dave Wilgush. The cover date is January of 2021. In a world where the Elliots adopted Bruce Wayne after the death of his parents, Gotham has become a city-state. Senator Thomas Elliot is Gotham's favorite son, but other members of Gotham's upper class have begun to disappear, and Elliot is coming face-to-face -face with Batman the Silenced. So, the real heroes out there our uh, patreon backers will get a chance to listen to 
uh, our bonus episode uh, in which we covered Gargoyles, of all things, and, uh, and one episode of the animated series. And I was so dumbstruck by this story. I just had to comment on that. And I'll, I'll certainly have some of those same comments tonight. But I love Philip Kennedy Johnson. I think he's a good dude. I have not read his his Superman. I know that some people tend to really like it. Matt's giving me the thumbs up here. One of my favorite comics of all time, all time, was his first big miniseries at Boom. A little fun story, Warlords of Appalachia. For one of the Patreon bonus episodes that we've talked about of doing non-Batman comics that one of us loves that the other one hasn't read, where I've said we should do The Question or Grendel, we're going to have to do that because I haven't read that. Yes, we are going to have to do that because you will read it and I hope you love it. I I, I love the shit out of it. I and... have little doubt. Dan and I have interviewed him twice for WMQ. And he's a, he's a stand-up solid guy and I've I've really enjoyed his Superman. And it was one of his first big opportunities to write something. And I remember I I covered it because I I just I loved just reading the preview story. So I did an interview and like I I was publishing a review and like he was like really nervous about it. And like he was like texting me about it. Like, dude, did you like it? Did you did you like it? Like, is it, you know, like, what's the review going to be like? And like totally like as a novice guy, just scared to death of, with a real personal book that he put a lot of time and effort into it. It's amazing and stunning. And there's one panel in particular that just gives me so much just joy because, uh, you know, he'll tell you this as being active duty military. He can't he can't officially say anything about Donald Trump. But if you read that book, it's very clear to see his thoughts and feelings about Trump. And there's just one panel when the whole world is crumbling in on this evil president and the the Oval Office is in tatters. And like it feels like we can visually see the moral stain that this president has brought upon the country. And it's just, it's so cathartic and good. This is none of that. And I hate that. I hate that. I hate that uh, for for Philip here because um, there is one page out of fifty two. There is one page that is good. One page, I'm, precisely one page. We'll get there. I'm curious if it's the same page that I thought. Oh, well, that's novel. Exactly. There's one page where you could have taken that page and built an interesting story around it. One page that could have been an engaging Elseworld slash dark multiverse tale. And instead, we get 50 pages of convoluted, hot-ass garbage mess. We're talking the Arkham page, right? Precisely. Yeah, okay, good. I'm uh, right there with you. As a statement, I read 90 to 95% of DC's output every month. There's very little I do not read. Anything headlining Lobo is probably it. I have a real dislike of the character of Lobo. I just, I never get it. I, I just don't get this character who started out as a parody, who became the thing he was parodying. I just, he does not, Lobo does nothing for me. 
and you know some of like i don't read looney tunes that's just time looney tunes are animation i i don't generally think they work as well in comics and i but don't you read, love scooby-doo i do but i also don't read the scooby-doo regular just the batman team up just again there's only so many hours in the day and i'll watch all the animation so I read all of these Tales from the Dark Multiverse one-shots. They are all this. This was the assignment to write the most bleak, unpleasant thing you could come up with. This was what Marvel does with what-ifs. There's a whole riff about what-if stories from Marvel where Marvel can come up with what is, you know, the, the lightest possible story, you know, what if Peter Parker had a good birthday and somehow this story would wind up with everyone Peter Parker loves dying the day after. What ifs invariably end with terrible endings with lots and lots of characters dying horribly. And I believe that we could get there, at least in terms of being dark and bleak. Like, an Alfred that has lost his mind, still in service of a Bruce who has lost his mind, that's pretty dark and disturbing. All of the other shit in this book is bad and dumb. And here's one of the things that frustrates me about this, is there are many. While I understand you don't necessarily have the time when you only have this one shot to explain everything that leads to this point. How is it that Bruce losing his mind a little and, and then a lot and being adopted by the Elliots somehow causes Gotham to become this independent city state? Is it that no man's land happened? The earthquake happened? Batman wasn't there to save Gotham, and so the U.S. government cut it off? I need to know why this, at least some grounding in why this happened. Because without it, it just, I don't know why it's spinning out of hush, necessarily. And you spend so much time like setting up basically this Elseworld that uh, oh, Gotham's a city-state, and then Tommy Elliot is a, a senator in some Gotham assembly. But then Gotham also has a president. Oh, it's Lincoln March. Ugh. So this whole book, this whole last book, is the politics of an alternate Gotham you do not give a shit about. And how Jason Todd, the street rat, is running the most powerful private security contracting firm in Gotham. And why does a small city-state need a private military contracting force that I can't imagine wanders that much far afield when it's got friggin' talons as security? Oh, and then uh, Talia and the League is also in this story. There's so much in this story. And none of it needs to be here. This should have been stripped down to that initial, not even the core, because I don't think, again, this is what the story doesn't have a core. It's a whole bunch of 
little ideas that sort of float around in a cloud. The idea that when the Waynes were killed, the Elliots took in Bruce, there is a story there. Bruce and Tommy being raised as brothers in a house where you have the abusive father and the clutching, clawing mother that maybe pitted them against each other or forced them to, you know, grow close because the environment around them was toxic. And then you could do this whole thing with them as as brothers. And maybe Miss Elliot's got Munchausen by proxy, right? And she's purposely abusing one of the one of the boys and you know, get them to see doctors and whatnot. And then maybe maybe that's how Bruce goes insane. Maybe that's how Tommy still goes on to become a, uh, an actual medical doctor. Like he's horrified at this treatment uh, of his would-be brother, right? I just, I don't see why the city-state thing is there and where it comes from and why there are so many wheels within wheels. I think you could have done this story where... Tommy is CEO of Wayne. He's rich. He's manipulative. He Maybe he's running Gotham's mobs as CEO of Wayne. Yeah. He's had Bruce institutionalized. So you get the insane broken Batman with the broken Alfred operating out of Arkham, fighting the mob. He's basically the Punisher. You've got this sort of twisted, bandaged, hush Batman working from Arkham with Tommy ruling Gotham as, you know, mob boss and industrialist. Now, this one page that we've mentioned, it's uh, it's a six panel grid and it explains and it tells it doesn't show. So that's that's kind of a bummer. But again, it's just a page. Not much you can do in a page. But it tells how Batman Bruce acquired all of his skills while he was in Gotham. So he learned something from, say, Amadeus Arkham, quote, who taught me criminal psychology and how to fake a worsening psychosis. Disgraced spy, Nick Mason, who taught me disguise, lockpicking, and all things spycraft. Legendary martial artist turned murderer, Dolores Madigan, who showed me everything she knew about unarmed combat. Mob assassin, Sal Buckets Barusco, who taught me how to kill to leave a message or without leaving a trace. That's the interesting part of this book. Batman's training at the hands of other crazy people and or murderers. That's the dark, twisted thing. Like, this should have been some combination of Hush and Year One or Batman Begins or something like that. Not this, again, hot-ass, convoluted mess that we end up with. Again, you get this thing, you know, Jim Gordon was killed by Tommy to hide something. There's this whole thing with Hush having... Killed Jim Gordon and Barbara heading up the outsiders in the resistance. And she's blind and she's working with Cass Kane and T. Oh, Drake. oh, oh, because you see she's the Oracle. <laughs> There's too much going on. 
And that is, again, a common problem with, as we've seen with Elseworlds, with what ifs, with all of this, that you only have this one little story to tell this whole thing, this whole world you've crafted. And so you just cram so much into it. You ain't got to do that. Oh, and let's not forget, other than Alfred, the one other person who is part of Bruce's employ. Oh, it'd be Jack Napier. Yep. Yep. You got Joker. You got a Joker with like weird bolts in his face as the other member of the Batman, the silenced, which is he's not addressed as until the last page. His his employ imprisoning all of the people who've brought Gotham to this place. Also, just as a, a and this is just one of these little things that you know you can ignore because it's an alternate world. But I keep talking about Amadeus Arkham. Amadeus Arkham died like the 1930s. Yeah, you want Jeremiah Arkham, right? Yeah, Amadeus founded the asylum. Jeremiah is his like nephew, or now because. Timelines have shifted great nephew. So yeah, that, that wouldn't have been Amadeus because he would have been dust. Yeah, bones and, and journals. Editing probably should have caught that one. So yeah, out of again, 52 pages, you've got exactly one good page and one good panel. Uh, I will say the uh, the idea of Alfred dusting and trying to maintain a clearly crumbling Wayne Manor is very disturbing. And I like that. The rest of this is bad. Also just kind of annoyed that when you see Jason Todd, he's with his current paramour, Dinah Drake. That's Black Canary who doesn't show up again at all. Nope. Penguin too. One panel and then is gone. Noted philanthropist, Oswald Cobblepot. Oh, uh, and by the way, this story is not for your Dick Grayson fans out there. No, his dick is just flat out a talon. Ah, he's the gray son. Yeah, you, you get that, it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's out of the, the New 52 Nightwing. Oh, and the uh, Mad Hatter spouting bad poetry about the bloody bad of gotham could have just done without that and on that note i think it's time to put tales from the dark multiverse batman hush toward the bottom of the big board so is this worse than pushback yeah i'd say so because this is again hot convoluted garbage mess Okay, I, I'm not necessarily arguing that point, but we're not we're not getting all the way in the bottom. No. Like once you get to White Knight, you're like, please, for the love of God, someone kill me before I have to read another page of this. This never quite sinks to that level. Right. If it had been another twenty pages, it might have gotten there. Again, two thirty four down. Probably want to say 232 down at this point from Batman Houdini are the offensive. I don't remember there being anything offensive in Batman Unseen. It was just a giant friggin' mess. But definitely everything from 234 down has something about it that is truly offensive. Yes. I would 
put this, if I if it was up to me alone, I would say this is the new 227 under Gotham by Gaslight, just a few slots down from pushback. I am at this point almost factoring last Batman story out of this equation because that <laughs> is going to have to move. Yeah. Well, one day we'll come for that and Holy Terror and um, Judge Dredd. Uh, Judge Dredd. Yeah, those are the three. Absolutely. I want to give Case of the Chemical Syndicate a little bit more love. I want to put it below Case of the Chemical Syndicate. I'm trying to decide right there below that is grounded. That one Superman issue where, again, it's like, let's try to put all these cute little nods to Batman and Superman's histories in this one comic. And oh, here's Vandal Savage. There's a lot of commonality there with all of the winking at the camera. Mm. But this has that one really good page that Grounded really doesn't have. So, yes, I believe the new 228. Works for me. All right. And I'm sorry. This was my idea. This is very bad. If I ever suggest we do another Hush episode, please tell me now. We will not. We will not. No more hush. I Can we resolve for the rest of, of 2023? No more hush. I need, a, I need a hush-free safe space. The only way we will do any hush is if somebody actively pays us to do more hush. But I will, n- I will not foist any stories with hush upon you this year. Okay. That's good. That's good. But if you want to give us $10 a month for three months, then you can make us read something with Hush. But we would much rather you made us read something that we could sit and enjoy talking about for, you know, 90 minutes. But for now, that does do it for the night. Next week, uh, Abigail Hartbaum wanted us to talk Gotham Academy. So we're doing that because it's Batman Goes to School Week on Batchat. No hush. No hush free. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers. Dan Grote, June, conduit of outdated joke names. Jen, come on. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. We're not picking a hush story. (laughs) Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley. Go Utes. Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus. Bobby Tuba. Tim Rooney. Giorgio Sreggioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.